Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with George P. Liao, MD, and Charles S. Cox, MD, about the article, Autologous Bone Marrow Mononuclear Cells Reduce Therapeutic Intensity for Severe TBI in Children, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2015. Dr. Liao is a general surgery resident and a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Pediatric Surgery at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, Texas. Dr. Cox is the George and Cynthia Mitchell Distinguished Chair in Neurosciences, Director of the Children's Program in Regenerative Medicine, Co-Director of the Texas Trauma Institute, and Professor in the Department of Pediatric Surgery at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston. Welcome, gentlemen, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Would you start by giving us some background to your study? Why study bone marrow mononuclear cells in children with uh, traumatic brain injury? Sure. So our center here in Houston has a lot of experience treating and also conducting research on traumatic brain injury. Dr. Cox happens to be the director of trauma for our children's hospital here at uh, Memorial Hermann, and uh, we have had experience doing both preclinical as well as clinical trials in traumatic brain injury. And one of the things that had come out of our preclinical studies was that an intravenous strategy using bone marrow-derived stem cells, which in this case we have been using mononuclear cells as they're a population that's easily isolated from the bone marrow, have shown the ability to reduce the acute inflammation and edema in our preclinical rodent models. And so we were trying to translate this to the clinical setting. And uh, we had done a phase one safety trial from 2006 to 2008, where we had 10 children that we treated with autologous bone marrow mononuclear cells and delivered intravenously. And we had done that study for safety purposes, and our outcome measures were radiographic as well as neuropsychologic. And we were thinking about the preclinical findings, and we thought, hey, you know, what if we tried to design some sort of retrospective study to look at whether our therapy benefited these children in the acute setting? And how can we simulate or how can we find the analogous parameters to edema and neuroinflammation in in our human population that we have demonstrated in the preclinical studies? So the idea was really this fundamental comparison that uh, that any intensivist understands and that's when you you have two patients side by side and they both have an intracranial pressure of 18 let's say and they're both at at right at that kind of therapeutic threshold of malignant intracranial hypertension and one of them is having no therapeutic intervention and has an ICP of 18 and then one next to him has every possible intervention in the tiered Brain Trauma Foundation therapeutic strategies for managing intracranial pressure has maxed out on every one of those possible interventions. Well, they both have an ICP of 18. Clearly, those are two different cohorts of patients when you generalize that to a a bigger population. And so Mm -hmm. the idea being that since we know that all of these interventions, uh, these tiered interventions of hyperosmolar, hyperoncotic, ultra-hyperosmolar therapies, hypothermia, decompressive craniectomy, all of those types of interventions in an escalating manner have risk associated with them. And the, the idea being, if 
this preclinical finding that Dr. Liao was talking about, principally blood-brain barrier integrity preservation with cell-based therapies, that means, in theory, the osmolar therapy would be more effective if you have an intact blood-brain barrier. Therefore, if it's more effective, it's more durable. If it's more durable, then we have the ability to do a reduced therapeutic intensity, if that, if that all makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's, that was really the genesis of it. Uh, and, since there's a, and since there is a validated score, the pilot score, in pediatric patients, we thought maybe we could look back uh, and see, because this isn't something that we a priori thought about. It's something that came up after that initial trial was done, and then after we got this other, some other uh, more robust data. So what did you look at in this study? So what we did was we looked at a few different things. So we looked uh, primarily we looked at the the pilot score that Dr. Cox mentioned, and the pilot score is an aggregate score looking at various parameters used towards treating intracranial hypertension. So beginning with treatment of fever, sedation, neuromuscular blockade, ventilation strategies, osmolotherapy, CSF drainage, the use of barbiturates, and then course surgery, as well as uh, hypothermia. And so what we did was we went back into patients' charts of the 10 patients that we had enrolled in our phase one trial and looked at their pilot scores every day from, from admission. Uh, we also looked at a, another scoring system called the, the PILOT score, or the Pediatric Logistic Organ Dysfunction Score, and looked at what organ systems were affected each day for those patients. And we also looked at the number of days that these children required ICP monitoring, and we chose that to try to have a more focused, if you will, length of stay parameter for these patients that often have polytrauma, so a neurointensive length of stay. Mm-hmm. And then what we did was, because this phase one trial was just for safety. We didn't have a control group. And so what we did was we went back and used the same criteria we used to enroll these 10 patients to a database of all children that had come in from during that same period from 2006 to 2008, as well as the years prior to that. We went back to the year 2000 uh, and went up to 2008 because uh, while we were enrolling, we were actually able to capture most of those patients that came in during that period into our clinical trial. And so in order to find control patients, we had to go further back. So what did you look at for outcomes? You, you looked back at the organ dysfunction and the pilot score in terms of intensity of neurologic treatment. What were your outcome measures? So the outcome measures were the daily pilot score as well as daily pilot scores. We also looked at the different lengths of intracranial pressure monitoring days to look for a difference. Mm-hmm. So what did you find? So we found that, interestingly, so our, our goal was during the, the phase one trial to deliver, to, to harvest the bone marrow and deliver the mononuclear cells within 48 hours of injury. And what we found was that starting around 48 to 72 hours post-emission or post-injury, we found a divergence in the pilot scores between the phase one treated patients and those controls that we had found. And that was sustained for at least a week and beyond. And we found, interestingly, that the the pilot score showed the same kind of trend, but it was offset by a week. And when we looked at the ICP monitoring days, we we found that our, our phase one patients had monitoring days about five days less than the control group. 
What is the mechanism by which these stem cells might have potentially had a beneficial effect, at least on the acute management and intensity of treatment? So at this point, we, we think we rely on the preclinical studies that we've done. When we've done extensive studies in rodent models using a controlled cortical impact injury model on, on rats, and we have found that the mononuclear cells working through a blank interaction modulates the inflammatory response. And we found in some of our immunohistochemistry analyses of rodent brains that the population, the, the inflammatory cell, the microglial population, macrophage population in the brain is modified in that the, the more inflammatory M1 phenotypes are switched more towards a regenerative M2 phenotype. And we think that may be part of the, the mechanism in which the neuroinflammatory response is attenuated. And we have also shown in edema studies that the blood-brain barrier is probably preserved better in subjects and our animals that were treated with our stem cell therapy. Do you have longer-term outcomes on those children, and are you continuing your studies with the mononu- bone marrow mononuclear cells? We have up to 24 months outcome study on that, those phase one children, which showed, interestingly, progressive improvement of their Glasgow outcome score, which typically doesn't move, you don't move a category after six months. And so we had, out of those 10 patients who had a 7 out of 10 were in a dichotomized good outcome, by 24 months, 9 out of 10 were in a dichotomized good outcome. So that's unusual to have movement after six months. The, we have a phase 2B trial that's funded by the NIH that's ongoing. We've enrolled 11 patients to date in that trial. And then we've done 25 adult patients in a Department of Defense-funded study. There was a dose escalation phase 1-2A study that had uh, controls included. So the other thing is, is that we think that there's a upregulation of the anti-inflammatory response, downregulation of the pro-inflammatory response systemically with this mononuclear cell infusion that probably is uh, another big driver of this macrophage phenotype polarization. So that ultimately translates into white matter volumetric preservation. And we have some hints of the treatment effect size on both the phase one trial and then on our adult phase two trial, which will have all of those data ready to go in late March when the final follow-up is done. Interesting. In your the, the current study looking at the intensity of therapy, um, what were the limitations of the study? The limitations of our current study, I guess I could speak a little bit to that. The obvious limitation that we talked about is the control group. So because we were actively enrolling patients during the 06-08 period for the phase one trial, there weren't an, enough time-matched control patients during that period. So we had to look back a few years prior. And so there's a concern about differences in practices and, of course, the the limitations in numbers of patients that we enrolled. Do you think your practice changed much over that 8- to 10-year period? So we actually tried to look into that. One of the things that we did was we looked at the amount of, for example, pentobarbital, the amount of hypertonic saline, and the amount of induced hypertension that was required. Uh, during the, the various phases. We actually broke down the timeline from before the phase one trial, during the phase one trial, as well as the complete time period. And we found that there was no change in the use of hypertonic saline, but in, during the phase one trial, none of the patients required, and none of those patients required pentobarbital, 
although during that same period, the few controls that we did have did require pentobarbital as well. So even though I think there's a general trend in moving away from using pentobarbital, there was no significant difference in terms of the use, usage of those between the treated and the control patients. And, you know, some of that could also be you know, if we believe that our treatment is working, that the patients would not have required that higher ex escalation of therapy and the usage of pentobarbital. So that's a little bit complicated, but we, but looking at just the, in the numbers of patients that were placed on those higher tiered therapies, it does not seem to be a difference in the in practices. This is really interesting material that you're presenting and interesting studies. It'll be fascinating to see how the subsequent trials roll out. Are there implications from this study for our current care of children with severe TBI? I, I think there are. I think, that, I think that the implications are that the global inflammatory response in a multimodal manner, which is how the pleiotropic mechanism of action is, is really how cell-based therapies work, which intrinsically makes it unpalatable for funding agencies. But I use the correlate of how progress was made in children's oncology in the 1970s. If you think about Hodgkin's disease, it was an almost uniformly fatal disease for which each of the modes of therapy that we had when used alone was ineffective. When we used single-target strategies, when we changed to multimodal, multi-agent chemotherapy, multimodal eye surgery, radiation, and multi-pronged, multi-mechanism of action chemotherapeutics, we moved the needle in terms of survival, right? Mm -hmm. That type of strategy in terms of funding today would never, ever get off the ground. And that, the reason that's important is, uh, or reason, the reason the data are important, and, when, and we have this historical example of how it actually works in patients, i.e. The, the, the Hodgkin's story, is that the multimodal therapeutic strategy has a chance to move the needle in these otherwise intractable problems. And that's precisely how we think cell-based therapies work, i.e., modulate multiple cytokines, alter both the blood-brain barrier and the, the macrophage polarization within the brain. That, that gets really dirty when you talk about it in terms of mechanistic hypothesis-driven research. But unfortunately, patients don't care if they get cured by a dirty mechanism of action, right? Right. They, they just want to get better. Now, I have never had a parent ask me the question, well, gee, well, how would a multimodal mechanism of action really be good for my, for my child? It just doesn't come up, right? It's, that's not what people care about. And so I understand the need for the underpinning. I, I'm saying this out of hyperbole and, you know, et cetera. But, but nevertheless, we have examples in our fields where those types of strategies have yielded miraculous results that were thought to previously not have been possible with the tools at hand. You know, it wasn't some paradigm shift. It wasn't some we invented a new way to tackle tumors. You know, it wasn't like mm -hmm. antibiotics that showed up and, oh, mm -hmm. well, now we can cure this disease. And so I think that, I think that those examples are important for us in the, in the field of cell-based therapy because those are the implications for translating this forward. And, and not just cell-based therapies, but a whole host of things, right? We have 10 small molecule drugs and other therapeutic strategies that seem to improve things a little bit, and they're all coming at different mechanisms of action. 
I think it's time for us to start to say, you know, we need to use all of these relatively safe agents on these patients to try and really improve outcomes because that's where that that's how desperate the field is. And so, I mean, of course, the follow-on studies are to, to take these through the iterative phases, which we're doing. There are other cell types that are in this, I call them all kind of cousin cells of these, all of these bone marrow. There are different culture conditions that can derive different bone marrow-derived cells that all have various pros and cons associated with them. I liken it to the field of cardiovascular therapeutics. You know, there's 50, 100 different drugs in the adrenergic manipulation field right? Mm -hmm. For each receptor and one's a little more selective and one's a little more toxic or one's a a little more this or a little more that. And so similar findings in the bone marrow derived cell field, there's a range of cells that are all kind of in that same family of activity. And so those are all going to be coming forward and I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I don't think there's going to be a winner or a loser, you know, oh, this is the cell or that's the cell that needs to be used that kind of thing. I don't think that's how that's going to go. So anyway, I mean, I think that that's how things are going to ultimately move forward with the cell-based therapeutics. Certainly the single mediator approach in sepsis has been resoundingly unsuccessful. And I, I... Ah, well, of course, right? <laughs> and, it, and, it, and, and why would you expect it to work, yeah. right? Because from what we know, there's multiple redundant... Yep. Uh, inflammation is an overlapping redundant system, right? And mm-hmm. the reason is because an inflammatory response is really important to survive over one jillion years. <laughs> so it has built-in redundancies. Well, that's why the whole pleiotropic strategy right. in an inflammatory disease process, we think, works. And so the, the, the question that some people say is, oh, well, if you just think it's inflammation, why don't you just use a small molecule, right? Because there's a lot of great small molecules that are anti-inflammatory. You know, steroids didn't work. Why do you think that, that, that this would, when you, I mean, why do you think that's the mechanism of action when something that's maybe even a more potent anti-inflammatory, it's a small molecule, you can titrate it, blah, blah, blah. That's a, a reasonable question. But I think that the answer to that is the cell-based strategy really produces a area under the curve kind of continuous output both systemically but also all by by doing that alters these regional effector cells in the brain and i think that that's one of the critical differences it goes through this kind of secondary signal transduction pathway via cells that is a little bit different i don't think it's just cytokine output yeah i think it's probably much more complex than that right and really what we're doing is it's a numbers game on the innate immune system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, only so many cells can line up and get out of the bone marrow within a brief period of time. And we kind of bypass that intrinsic physical limitation that exists. So that's how we see this in a, in a big picture kind of teleological sense. Well, it'll be fascinating to follow the work along and see what happens in the subsequent studies. I, I hope that your early work continues to bear out. It would be certainly wonderful to have a truly therapeutic intervention beyond supportive care for children with severe TBI. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make, either one of you? I would like to say that, yeah, I, I agree with what Dr. Cox is saying you know, and, and Dr. Parker. You know, we, we look at these kids and family members that come through to our hospital and our trauma center, and every time we approach a family in terms of enrollment into the clinical trial, we have to have a serious conversation with them about, you know, what what this treatment offers them. You know, it's not a miracle mm-hmm. drug. Uh, it's not gonna it's not gonna make their their child get out of bed the next day. 
but we're looking for some sort of improvement that may or may not be evident six months, one, one year mm-hmm. down the line, but there potentially may be something that may be evident later on. And I think there's, there's still a lot of work in terms of figuring out both acute and long-term effects of, of our therapy, but it's definitely a bunch of faith, I guess, for both the investigators and the family members and caregivers that are volunteering their, their children for our study. And so we're just very deeply indebted to them and as well as the members of our laboratory that, you know, on the basic science side that are kind of cheering us on, you know, every every week that we have our lab meetings and we talk about some of the clinical ups and downs in, in the hospital. And so it's, it's been truly a great experience kind of trying to bring uh, potential therapeutics from from the bench to the bedside. So I think it's been a, a great experience. And this particular retrospective study kind of helped us kind of bring it back in reverse. You know, we took sort of a clinical we went, we started off with a clinical trial, then kind of did some follow-up preclinical studies, and then went back into our clinical trial data again. And so that I think that's always something that is very interesting to do, not just translate one way, but you know, look look in both, both directions. directions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating stuff. Well, I wish you great luck with the future studies, and I appreciate your talking with us today. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. We have been talking today with Drs. George Liao and Charles Cox from the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston about the article, Autologous Bone Marrow Mononuclear Cells Reduce Therapeutic Intensity for Severe TBI in Children, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2015. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. If you are unable to attend one of SCCM's live courses, you can view the educational sessions on your own time and at your own pace through SCCM On Demand. For more information or to order an on-demand course, visit www.sccm.org. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.